I'm your host, Neil Langridge, and I'm joined today by Derek Mitchelson, field CISO at the Cybersecurity Pioneers Checkpoint. Artificial intelligence is the subject you can't avoid in tech right now. I discuss this hot topic, exploring the impact of AI on cybersecurity, what the future might hold, and whether we really should be worried about Skynet. Hi, everybody. I'm Neil Langridge, and welcome to the latest edition of Return of the Hack, the podcast from E92+. I'm joined today by our guest, Derek Mitchelson, who's the field CISO at Checkpoint. Hi, Derek. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And also, thank you for inviting me on. Been looking forward to this all week. It's a pleasure to be here. No, it's brilliant. Lovely for you to join us. So, and we're going to finally address one of those big topics in cybersecurity and technology generally right now, which is AI, artificial intelligence. And there's always so much chat. There's been plenty of blogs. There's been a lot written about it. And invariably on lots of these, you get to the end and somebody has written to say, aha, it's all been written by AI or chat GPT at the bottom. But um, I think we can definitely both confirm that we are humans involved in this conversation, Derek. Absolutely, no artificial intelligence. The only intelligence will actually be, I guess, me and you in, in real. So uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, we're gonna. Yeah, we'll, we'll test that. So let's kick off with a nice, simple, easy one uh, to begin with. I suppose is AI all going to come and destroy us? I hope not, and I don't expect that it will. But uh, like all technologies, we need to understand what the impact of the technology is. We also need to understand what the guardrails or regulations are that we can put around this. I think that's important. The The development maturity of AI is incredible. It's learning all the time. It's evolving all the time. And if you ask the experts, uh, very much they're saying it will evolve to the point that there's quickly got more intelligence than, than the humans, than those that are trying to manage it. So that's where the concern comes from, definitely. But uh, I would like to think in my lifetime, in my children's lifetime, that we won't be in a world that's controlled by AI. We'll be in a world where AI helps us, makes it a better world for us, but uh, you just never know. No, well, hopefully no uh, cybersecurity vendor is going to end up uh, kind of taking the plunge and calling one of their products Skynet or anything uh, anything too much like that, so we can all, all keep ourselves kind of a little bit controlled. But I think certainly um, since in my time in, in cybersecurity, it would be interesting to hear your perspective. I haven't seen anything accelerate in terms of its development and uptake um, in quite the way AI has over the last kind of uh, kind of six or 12 months, especially from not just in terms of the technology itself, but people's understanding and interaction of it. I mean, you, you certainly get technologies come and they get exciting, but that might be kind of, you know, under the hood, underneath products where people don't necessarily see them. But, you know, when it's when it's a case of like, you know, kind of 12 year olds being able to start using ChatGP to to start using for their, you know, for their homework, um, you know, and, it, and it's come so far in sh- such a short space of months. That rate of change is, is something that's a challenge for everybody, I suppose, especially you in the security industry, trying to understand how best to use it. And also at the same time, trying to counter think how adversaries are potentially using it. We were already fighting a war where hackers, threat actors were, were using AI. It's just the way it's evolved in the last few months that suddenly it's uh, it, it's now suddenly it now understands it understands the hack. It understands how it should be getting used in order to to cause damage or cause chaos, and uh, that's the concern of cyber professionals that uh, we are looking to build offensive AI capabilities into our systems so that we can defend against it, proactively defend, but at the same time threat actors have got the same APIs, 
they have got the same access to the tooling that we have got. So uh, they're trying to use it for uh, criminal purposes, and uh, that's quite a dangerous place to be. It is. I suppose kind of typically you, I was going to ask kind of if it's a little bit of an arms race um, in, in this case, but I suppose it's a little bit different. It's not about kind of new technology and new investment. It's, it's understanding how to use this technology because you're not kind of, you're not adding on features, you're not building better hardware. Um, what you're doing is kind of, you know, helping teach it, um, teach the technology to learn more and, and you know, become smarter. Um, so it's, it's, I suppose it's a different sort of arms race than potentially we've, we've seen before from a cybersecurity perspective. Yes, uh, absolutely. But already we're seeing, already we're seeing that the threat actors are, are using it for, using it in criminal ways, specifically around code development. So that's development of malware and uh, spear phishing as well. Spear, spear phishing in particularly playing on the sort of things that we all respond to. So it's less, it's less the, the, the stereotypical Nigerian prince that's mailing you to say, I've got a trillion pounds, please help me get the money out of my country. It's I've, now, I've still not got that yacht yet either, Derek. I've been promised it so many times. <laughs> it's, it's, now, it's now more playing on things like, uh, you know, we've seen something abnormal within your scan result. You know, so please click on this yeah. link to create uh, an appointment with a consultant. Now, that's the sort of thing that plays on people's fears. Everybody jumps quickly at that. You know, most people look at the spam email that comes in and goes, that's a nonsense, I don't know any Nigerian prince. But it's different when they actually start to target and it starts to understand who you are, understands your persona. So you can really create targeted phishing emails that are very, very convincing, you know, as, as one thing. And the other thing we're seeing, obviously, as well as a, a whole, whole lot of deep fakes. So, you know, analysing voices, analysing videos, it's... Uh, you know, you were right at the start to say we are two humans interacting, but it won't be very long between, but you know, to get to the point where you might not know that you are interacting with a human. How would you know on a telephone call? How would you actually know who you're interacting with? You know, I'm, I'm thinking a couple of years ago I was talking a lot about the metaverse and what the metaverse might mean for how we all work and who you're actually meeting in the metaverse. Would you be engaging in it? Would you be doing your commercials and contracts? And how do you know who you're interacting with? Add AI to that and the whole thing just opens up. It becomes a minefield of, I guess, identity. Identity is the tenet of security, but uh, getting that identity right at the moment is even more critical. And I suppose that's kind of one of the scary things about it in a, in a way that it's beginning to under, undermine some of those technologies that we have that are effectively how we how we deploy cybersecurity and how we verify identity. So we talk about kind of things like deep fakes. Multi-factor authentication is is kind of one of those kind of key parts in terms of what we do, access to personal information, personal questions, and even our own, you know, from a multi-factor, it can be kind of who we are, and, and that can be touch and what have you, and it can be our fingerprints, but it can also be our face. So if, organ if the technology can start doing, I suppose, 3D modelling of, of, of our face, then that's beginning to undermine some of those kind of foundation points of cybersecurity. Well, well, we know in the early stages that uh, you were able to open up mobile phones by, you know, taking pictures, putting pictures, and the technology has improved since then. But uh, yeah. now that AI is actually improving that as well, yes, I very much fear that... Uh, where does that stop? I mean, it's uh, facial recognition is what we're using for a lot of technology. So uh, I expect connecting up AI to what three D printers. These it's not far fetched, Neil, to suggest that we're going to be great creating realistic 
3D images of people with realistic voices at the market. Uh, that's not Skynet. That's, that's the world that we're actually living in now. Yeah, and obviously there are kind of potentially practical and really positive benefits for that as well. Um, and I suppose it's kind of just touching on one of the things you kind of mentioned earlier around those guardrails and the regulation. And it's been interesting, I think, kind of, you know, a lot of organisations that benefit in a certain commercial area, um, not, not just necessarily technology, but or whether it's kind of utilities or whatever it happens to be, aren't always keen on regulation um, because that can potentially be seen as an inhibitor uh, to their kind of uh, business success. But already we're seeing organisations involved in AI calling for a bit of a slowdown, a bit of a halt, more regulation in to be able to, for us to be able to get a handle on it. Uh, the problem is, is the bad guys <laughs> don't really care about that. So kind of what's, what are the challenges around kind of, incre uh, kind of increased regulation, where that can build some benefits, but, you know, where there are kind of potential challenges to, to that coming in that could impact how we defend against it in a way that the, the, you know, the, the bad actors won't experience the same issues. I think first of all to say in that, that uh, I think the reason that uh, those that are managing, owning the AI technology are working quite well and calling for regulation is commercial. I don't actually think they want to work in a world where they're regulated. I think they want to make sure that uh, they're doing everything they can so that they can generate the maximum commercial value from what they're generating. Without being a regulated world means that uh, there, there could actually be countries again that uh, stop their technology from being in use. So I think it's, I think it's for financial gain that uh, those that are calling out for regulation are doing it. Then when you come to professionals like me that come from a risk and data privacy uh, background, we very much are concerned around the, the ethics, the data privacy, what this actually means around this. But as, as you saw recently when the EU were trying to bring in some guardrails around around uh, AI, in particular ChatGPT, chat uh, the AI was actually developing and maturing faster than they were able to actually bring in the regulations. And, and draft regulations were having to change because the AI was maturing at a quicker pace than the lawmakers were able to actually bring in regulations. Now, that says something, I guess what I'd be saying on the basis of that is, you know, is it now, is it now too late? You know, are, are we, are these, laws take ages to come into power and, uh, you know, they go through stages, ex experts, etc. How can you bring laws in where the AI is actually learning and maturing all the time and changing? I think that's, I think that's a difficult thing. So as much as I want guardrails and I want regulations, my, my concern is, uh, why were we not talking about these before this actually went live? Why, you know, why, why are these technologies now out? Is the cat out of the bag? Potentially it is. And, uh, you know, are the regulations always going to be playing catch up? Again, potentially it is. And I think this is what we're going to see. We're going to see, we're going to see cat and mouse of regulations and AI maturity. It's what we're going to see as functions get, or capabilities get released. Then I expect we're going to have to see an iteration of regulations where they catch up because, very much we are the guinea pigs of the AI at the moment. We're the ones that are using it. We're the ones that are helping it learn. And as, as we do that, it's, uh, as I said earlier, it's, it just continues to evolve and to learn. And it's, it's very difficult to regulate something like that. Never seen anything like this before. Never seen it. Yeah, and we're, so we're very much learning on the job and having to make it up as, as we, we go on. I suppose there's a, it, does that mean that there's a greater requirement on technology companies to effectively help frame uh, you know kind of best practice and if not kind of official government legisl legislation then at least some kind of you know agreed controls as to how this is used as much as uh, kind of you know as well and as ethically as possible 
I think this needs this needs to be the regulations and the guardrails need to be owned not by the technology companies, not by the governments either, because as I say, I think you'll find some of these have got commercial gains yeah. from what they're actually working together in. You know, an example of that, if you have a look at the, the large uh, cloud that's been built by the Pentagon at the moment, uh, they gave a very large contract in the last uh, year to Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and uh, yeah, and on the basis of what they've actually done, you know, and this is actually to create some defence capabilities. So those that are, have got the most advancement in AI are actually those that are getting large contracts with uh, governments, uh, with defence agencies, etc. So we need to be very careful around who's actually going to be owning these uh, guardrails. I go back to my time in the NHS, Neil, where when we were building out the COVID response for Scotland, so we were building how we were doing uh, contact tracing applications, how we would do applications for uh, doing proximity tests and for actually looking at the status of your COVID status. And what we found on the back of that was that the best way of getting these things in was to actually be working with the the ethics groups. So it was actually working with the softer groups, not the governments that was critical there. They were the ones that could represent the people, the consumers, how we were going to use that technology. And that's much more what I think we're needing to have in AI. We're needing to have not the technology experts driving what we're doing or the government. I think we're needing to actually have a lot of these ethical groups, you know, within the UK, the ICO organisations that can really uh, take this forward and look after the consumer rather than looking after the commercialisation. I think that's the critical bit. That could be the tipping point. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think it's it, it kind of seems to have got lost a little bit in, in recent times simply because of the rate of change. But certainly kind of in the kind of the, the, the kind of few years leading up to this, when there was a lot of talk about use of, of AI and machine learning in terms of certain kind of, you know, and building algorithms, whether it's kind of things like kind of facial recognition used by law enforcement, there, there, there were real concerns around um, how we build these technologies and building in things like kind of bias and stereotypes and what have you. So I think, is that another area where we, where we, it's kind of, the cat isn't out the bag, but there's, there's, there is a kind of a lack of control and that's something that needs to be kind of brought back in and taken aware of. I agree. I mean, how do we measure the prejudice of AI? We, we, you know, in, in workplaces, yeah. we go through we go through unconscious bias training as to, you know, we, we're all biased in a way, even though we don't realise we are, and it's trying to make sure we're not. How does how does that get built into the AI models? And, and who, who actually then polices that to actually say that uh, what it's doing or what it's learning, is it learning the right things? How do, how do we model that properly? There's a definite concern around there. That was a concern when I often comment on the facial recognition as to a lot of these yeah. technologies tend to be more biased in some of our ethnical groups. And, uh, you know, I know there's been some concern around things like AI and, you know, what it might do for those that uh, those that have got mental health issues or those that might be suicidal that, uh, you know, as to how it actually caters with these. So I think it's a huge concern around biased around our vulnerable groups and how we do it, which, again, is why I'm saying I think this needs to be policed by, not by governments, by ethical bodies in order to make sure that this cannot be in, in any way harming our minors, our most vulnerable in society. That's essential for me. Yeah, and I suppose that's, that's definitely one of those areas where you hope that, you know, I think as a, as a, a technology industry, we need to make sure that we're, we're coming together and, and the use of our own kind of AI in the, in the tools is, is kind of, you know, is really important in terms of being able to, to you know, to, to protect those groups. So I suppose it'd be interesting to kind of talk a little bit in terms of 
uh, you know, not just in terms of AI used by bad actors, but but by the you know by the good guys, by the you know organisations inside security like Checkpoint. Kind of how can it, with this current rate of change, how how can it be used as effectively as possible? How is where does AI fit into the into not in terms of the product portfolio, but in terms of how it powers some of these products to be able to to, to defend as effectively as possible? I, I expect that first thing it'll do is the you, you'll start to see a huge maturity within the the user behaviour modelling. So yeah. you know it will really start to understand what good looks like, what normal looks like, what abnormal looks like. So it'll definitely look to do that. It'll also be, be far quicker when it's doing looking at security operations capabilities, the things we normally log within uh, security sim or orchestration and automation. So that sits upon it. I expect AI will start to pick up all the heavy lifting. And of course, it will get better and better. It will start to improve. It will reduce the false positives. Hopefully, it gets to the point where it can spot zero days before we know about zero days. So some yeah. of these things are absolutely exciting. But uh, as I said earlier, that uh, you know, let's be honest, that the threat actors have got that same capabilities as well. So as we're trying to defend against that, I expect that they'll be using it to, to more quickly work out where there's vulnerabilities to actually have a look to see where we could use legitimate tooling, you know, for adverse conditions, etc. So I, I expect that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a much more AI-driven workforce in that security operations space. Uh, and I think that will get changed very much, very quickly. I expect we'll start to see that within the next three to six months. A lot of AI within that space, vendors bringing out technologies that uh, they're actually talking about AI replacing people. I do expect you yeah. start to see that. I think the escalations will always be to the senior teams to say, we've now found an anomaly, we think, with uh, a great degree of certainty, it's a risk. What do you want to do with it? Again, it will start to learn. So it will start to actually learn and then remediate as well. I expect it will change firewall rules. It will close down It will close down buckets that are, that are sitting there that are available. It will encrypt things that are sitting unencrypted. So I think, again, back to the guardrails, we need to make sure we give it the guardrails to work on you know, which will be good. And if I go back to my previous job working in healthcare, absolutely, we, we want AI to be able to help to personalise uh, health pathways, looking at uh, looking at conditions that, you know, we've got or looking at data from wearables. But uh, at the same time, you know, we don't necessarily want the security in hospitals to be, to be making big changes on the networks, which could have an impact to scanning machines or labs machines. So we need to get that right balance, I think, between automation and between the use cases where we use it. It's interesting because I think kind of all these discussion points that we're kind of covering, so often it comes back to that central theme, both from a good perspective and a bad perspective of AI being able to kind of uh, differentiate or struggle to differentiate or the tools being able to struggle to differentiate between what is a computer and, and what is a person. So from a, you know, a good perspective, building AI into tech, cybersecurity technologies means that when an attack is coming in or there's, uh, or, or there's a potential question mark or as you say, there's some potential behavior, is that being able to detect whether it is actually a person who's just made a mistake and done something a little bit different or detecting whether it's actually a pattern that builds up that it is a it is a potentially uh, an attack so i you know it, all of these questions always seem to spin back to the computer versus the versus the people um, both in a good way and a bad way yeah I, I, absolutely but as i say it's it's learning so quickly it's evolving i think it will get it'll get much better to be able to do that it will get much better to be able to differentiate between between good and bad, between what the right trends are, 
in order to come up with the, the right diagnosis of, as I say, either a, a medical a medical condition or the diagnosis as to what it's seeing on a network as to whether that's a threat or not. So, you know, yeah. it's it's a great thing that we should be we should embrace, but uh, it does need the guardrails in place in order to make sure that uh, it's doing the right things. I would still want people to be in charge of these things. You know, when it when it, when you come to conclusions, uh, I'm a believer at the moment that uh, we should be the arbiters of the outcomes. You know, it's great. It's great if it can feed in all the intelligence and say this is where I've got to. But I think we still need the senior decision makers that are, that are the ones that are still making changes, pressing buttons. That's that, that's the world I want to be in at the moment. Uh, not you know, not this slightly scary world. It's uh, you know another example. If you think about some of the things that happened on uh, on airlines, I know I know we had that condition before where if you remember some of the software was actually causing some of some of the air crashes. You know, and the pilots were actually fighting against it. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's back to that same thing around. Well, you know, they, how 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 do we want the AI to learn? You know, does the AI learn from simulations, or does it learn better in real term situations? If it's in real term situations, what is the impact of these situations? You know, before it learns, you know, we tend to learn from our mistakes. I expect that AI learns a lot from its mistakes as well, but uh, you know we need to make sure that we are removing the impact of these mistakes, making making the learnings as safe as possible. Yes, yeah, I, yeah, I, kind of absolutely. I feel like all my my references on this are going to end up being films, but I was going to go back to war games uh, from the eighties. At least that was an example where the computer uh, potentially started World War Three, but it did learn in the end. But that AI, I think, is kind of rather significantly less advanced than everything that we that we have now. Um, and I suppose you kind of will touch on another really important point on that investment organisations are making in, in AI and not replacing humans. I think we want the technology to help us make the most informed, the most accurate decisions possible. And, and we talk a lot about the secure skills gap in cyber and potentially technology being able to balance from that. But now what we've started seeing, and it was only this week that we heard about BT making you know, large numbers of, of, of cutbacks because they're going to be investing that money in, in, in AI and technology. And that, that, that kind of feels, there's kind of initial impact is that's uncomfortable because we want technology to be able to, to, you know, to, to address that, help us with that skills gap that we have in technology and cyber right now but not necessarily replacing the people. That seems a that seems a really bold step so early in this development that organisations are already potentially looking to replace people with the with the technology. I mean, I, I embrace that to a point. I'll, I'll give you a strong example. Checkpoint's got some brilliant AI that sits within its uh, mail security products, and what it does, it's got a fantastically high catch rate. At looking at uh, where it's finding business email compromise, where it's finding phishing, where it's finding threats and emails. It's unbelievable. Now, on the back of that, what I normally say when I'm doing C-level talks is you can use that type of AI in order to remove the laborious tasks from your security operations team. They don't want to be sitting there looking at emails. They don't want to be quarantining emails, releasing emails. They want to be doing things that they think are giving really good strong value back to the business growth or business success. So I think let's focus on these the repetitive mundane type roles, which are important. But if we focus the right way, then the AI can do a lot of that heavy lifting on the roles that uh, ideally people don't want to do. And let's free ourselves up to do that. The roles that are to do with the, the innovation, the transformation, the roles that are going to un underpin 
how some how companies actually take on the AI and change and transform. I think that's important, but we do need to again strike the balance. If it if it does start to replace all your security teams and organisations are saying, "Oh, we're fully reliant on AI." I wouldn't be comfortable in that world of when I have conversations with customers and they say, "Oh, we don't need uh, we don't need any humans anymore because the AI we're getting from Checkpoint is so good, it's preventing yeah. everything." Well, I myself would be uncomfortable saying to them, yeah. "That's where I'd want to be." It's, it needs to be a balance, but uh, it's for companies themselves to, I think, to work out that balance. Also, working at the messaging. The messaging is important. Uh, too often you just see headlines, which is there's going to be 8,000 redundancies because we don't need these roles for AI. I think the messaging needs to be, you know, we, we're looking to we're looking to create high revenue, high skilled jobs for professionals to go into the sort of jobs people want to have and want to want to get excited in the morning to come in and do. And what we're going to use is the technology for the the, the lower paid roles, the roles that uh, we find there's a lot of churn anyway because people aren't happy. I think that sort of message most people will go. That makes sense. Why would you not want to do that? Yeah. Yeah, but and ultimately we're going to need the people, not least to be able to to train um, and to be able to you know to provide because we're still at still at the stage I think where where in terms of being able to detect you know detect phishing emails and being able to to understand and see threats and understand that behaviour. You know, I think that you you can't beat that that human experience, and that's going to be really essential. At, 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 still being able to train because from a, a maturity perspective AI is still you know is still probably still at that toddler stage there's so much learning um, and development that needs to be done and it's 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 having that experience from kind of you know qualified professionals that's going to be able to to train it to make it as effective as possible yeah that, that, that that's absolutely right other thing probably worth mentioning as well Neil is to make sure that the the AI is available to to all customers all companies no individuals what i wouldn't like to see as well with the ai is that we suddenly become even more of a, a digital divide between yeah. those that have it and those that don't you know and again that that wouldn't be well it'd be good for the, the few that are making lots of money from these technologies yeah. and using them to protect themselves or to innovate but uh, we need to remember as well that uh, this it'd be great if everyone is benefiting from this type of technology and uh, I'm not really hearing much about that I'm not hearing around you know making sure that uh, you know every, everybody's got the same opportunities everyone's got the same capabilities there as always there'll be the few that have the premium accounts that are paying for the, the capabilities that are paying for the, the coding add-ons that let you actually, you know, drive more value from uploading your Python or your PHP code. And then I suspect there'll be some other organizations or, or other individuals that are not in that space to use it. So, you know, do we create much more of a digital divide through the technology as well, potentially? Yeah, that's definitely a concern. I think that's kind of, that's been highlighted um, in a way from something like ChatGPT, because that's been an example of where it has been, I think, a little bit more bit more available to so many people, not just, again, businesses, not just consumers. And I think that kind of people being able to use it and get excited about it and do some fun stuff and do some really silly stuff with it. But that's been good because it's given people that exposure. And, uh, and I think it's given a huge amount of people better understanding as to how some of the technology works. But then there's a lot of other stuff in the background that people are probably now beginning to realise that they don't necessarily have that access to. Um, and, and I just kind of then kind of just pitching, uh, kind of moving over to the, from a, a you know from a, a cybercrime and a bad actor's perspective, things like those consumer consumer uh, products like ChatGPT has definitely kind of lowered the barrier to entry for a lot of cybercrime as well. Is that something where you've seen 
kind of more entrants coming onto the market? Is it? And I suppose there's that question of, you know, has it? Where, where's the balance that it's 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 kind of helped bad actors more? Is it in terms of scale of being able to do so much more, so much quickly, uh, so much quicker than they ordinarily would have done, or has it been more because they've been able to do what you touched on earlier of being really granular from a spearfishing perspective of being able to understand people in a way that they just never really were able to do before. Yeah, the, the fishing's absolutely, it's it's totally changed spearfishing, absolutely. Malware development, uh, we're seeing it in malware development. At the moment, it's not quite as mature. Uh, it doesn't have the same level of sophistication as some of the malware that is out there that's being developed. However, it's learning all the time and it's changing all the time. And the more it gets used for de- developing malware, the better it will become at doing that. So yeah. we're definitely starting to see that as well. We're also seeing a thriving industry of people selling access to APIs, accessing accounts that have actually been breached or stolen and are now available on the dark web. So there's now there's now a community that are making money from actually trading and selling access to these systems, as well as the threat actors that are using it for developing the malware, for actually doing uh, for actually breaking breaking passwords. For example, you can you can go in there and you can help it to generate passwords for a persona which actually then helps you actually use it to actually then break the passwords as well at the same time so it's, it's getting used for all i would say ingenious types of things by criminals at the same time as we're using it for ingenious things to defend ourselves so it's, it's across the whole myriad of everything that a threat actor touches upon it's either been used or it's been looked at to see how they can use it yeah, is it fair to say it kind of strikes me as being something that's a little bit, little bit different? Because previously, you know, the cybersecurity industry kind of built tools and products to be able to to defend and remediate networks in the in the face of attacks. Attackers were building their own programs and applications to be able to attack networks, to be able to build kind of bot networks, to write code and malware. Whereas now, in a way, a lot of them uh, are, we're using the same tools. We're now, and obviously the bad actors are using some of those tools that they shouldn't be. They're getting access in a way that they shouldn't be. They're turning the tapes on what we've got. But we're actually now, I'd say, more than we have done previously, is that fair to say, using the same tool set, but in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got our own, we've got some of our own AI models or engines that we develop. Checkpoint's yeah. got uh, got many that it's used for years that, again, are maturing. But we, but yeah. we are all using the same commercial-based AI tooling as well in order to do it. So y- yes, absolutely, we're using we're using the same engines to defend and to be uh, and to attack and to go on the offensive. And that uh, and that means that the AI itself is actually learning. And it's, it's in many ways, hopefully, it learns and it knows who the goodies are and who the baddies are. But yeah. uh, you know, it's you know, it how 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 well it does that. Well, I guess we'll soon find out. But uh, yeah, we are we are using all these all the same tooling. We've got the same APIs. In many ways, yeah. we've got the same access to that same technology. And it's not just us individually. It's, it's, you then have a look at uh, how, do, how this impacts some of the nation states, the rogue nations that are out there as well, and what they've got access to and how they're doing that. So, uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a concerning, we're at a pivotal point, and I'm definitely very concerned to make sure that, uh, that we, come out, we come out on the top. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting kind of, kind of how you're building that we talked about kind of building things like kind of or, or trying not to build bias um, and prejudice into the systems it's the same sort of thing I, I suppose with ethics we we saw those kind of really simple examples early on of 
somebody saying, you know, can you can you write me a piece of malware? And ChatGPT would say no. And then you'd go, if I if I if I asked you to write a piece of malware theoretically, how would you do it? And then it just wrote it, and it was like, well, okay, well that wasn't very hard. But is actually this a kind of potential point that we can build more? ethical frameworks of AI being able to understand, as you said, between what's good and what's bad could actually be be a way of, of, of making sure that this is kind of, you know, in its future development, 12, 24, 36 months down the line, of actually, the, you know, these systems getting a better understanding of between good and bad. But then I suppose we get onto that question of who are the goodies and who are the, who are the baddies? Because that's, that's probably, that's not always kind of necessarily black and white either. Yeah, and who polices this? Who, who decides what's, what's good, what's bad? Sometimes, sometimes the lines can be blurred. It's difficult to, difficult to know what you're trying to do. Quite clearly, when Checkpoint Research are using AI, they're keen to, they're keen to, they're keen to often use it as a threat actor as well as, as yeah. the defenders because they, they want to they want to use it to understand what the, what the threat actors are doing how they're using that technology so it's it, it, on that basis we need to use it for for good and for bad but we need to we need to allow those that are actually trying to defend and using the technology I guess I guess they're the ones that should always have the priority and the access to the latest greatest features and we need to find a way of the AI learning when it thinks that uh, something is a threat and I guess sort of downgrading privileges stopping it from doing so much you know reducing the learning for example so uh, but that's going to be quite difficult i don't I, I don't not quite sure how it does that because how how can it differentiate between a scenario when someone's trying to learn how an attacker would do something against an attacker themselves actually saying you know i want to learn how to how to do something the other thing i think we need to be wary as well is we need to be very wary of of I guess lazy development practices. If we suddenly start to turn to AI to say, "Can can you develop me some code to do this?" and then we push that up into production because uh, it's again we need to make sure that we're running the AI through the AI AI through code scanners so that they we're able to understand any vulnerabilities. How how often will it actually look to pull in libraries? You know, has the AI then got to be able to check to see other critical vulnerabilities against these? Have, has there been any breaches associated with that code before? There's a whole lot of things that need to be built in, which is why why again we need to get these the groups of experts I think to start to take this forward and own that technology. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and that kind of whole verification piece, I think there'll, there'll probably be a you know a strong kind of you know kind of market that will build up around that of being able to to take that and 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 verify it. But I, what, one thing that kind of occurs is is AI going to be able to help us start being able to tip that balance between you know the, there is always that kind of challenge of you know what is what comes first in cybersecurity and we see that kind of ebb and flow. Is it is it defend first or is it proactive or actually do we accept that we've been breached and, and we just need to find stuff on the market, uh, find stuff on networks and what have you, and then kind of back to, no, we assume we haven't been breached and it's it's all about defence. Is it going to enable kind of, you know, us collectively to be able to tip that balance to be being a lot more on the front foot in terms of from a cyber security perspective, in terms of, you know, kind of really going to go hunting down and being proactive to to, to keep the bad guys out rather than just trying to, you know, kind of man the barricades? I, I think it will. Che- Checkpoint for many years have been at the forefront of what we call preventative security. So building yeah. our security models so they can stop zero days. An example of that I'll give you will be the log for j that uh, the Checkpoint, if you use Checkpoint physical firewalls or Checkpoint WAF sitting within the cloud, before anybody realised it was a zero day and was talking about it, 
the Checkpoint AI actually defended against it and stopped it. It mitigated the vulnerability. You still had to patch internally, but uh, externally you weren't vulnerable. Now, Checkpoint was the only vendor to do that. Uh, I, I think that as a way of defending should be the normal as, as we move forward. You don't want to have to defend. You don't want to have to mitigate and do things. You, you want the AI to get to that point where it's able to very, very quickly, within that nanosecond space, realise what that threat is and uh, prevent that threat before it actually becomes an impact. And that's going to be quite difficult to do, but uh, I think we're on that journey to be much more preventative. Yeah, and I think that's part of that democratisation that you talked about, that because it's not, it, it, it's a technology and it's it's accessing large language models and it's accessing, you know, kind of AI using, commer- you know, kind of broader commercial tools, that potentially it will be easier to build that into products that can, that are more accessible for SMBs, possibly that don't require as much human intervention, that, that can can require humans at the top level in terms of that verification, making that decision, making um, having that decision-making capability, but will it be a way of actually giving you know more more smaller businesses, more kind of kind of startups, more organisations without the large budgets access to some of this kind of more advanced technology and more preventative front foot technology rather than just relying on more kind of traditional products of you know just trying to trying to to block up as much as possible. I think it will. I, I've no doubts that. Uh we'll start to see this technology pushing into that uh, SMB type market, the small market for small individuals, small organisations. Checkpoint already have uh, a large number of products in that space. Yeah. And, and and the Checkpoint products actually share the same AI as the expensive products that sit in data centres. So at the yeah. moment, Checkpoint uses AI for prevention. And uh, I'm just looking forward to seeing that AI maturing and maturing be able to pull that uh, chat GPT and other models into that as to how we use it much better. So that's the world I want to be in. I want to be in yeah. that world where we're preventing things. I'm not sh- I'm not so sure I want to be in the world yet where uh, I'm having all these conversations with uh, avatars, with uh, with robots, with, with deep fakes. I'm not quite sure that's the world that I'm that I'm ready for yet. I still enjoy the personal interaction, people making decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Although having seen any of the videos and the, the launch materials around the metaverse, if that wasn't enough to put you off, I don't know what word. Is. That's one of the most terrifying things I've, I've seen. So I suppose one of the, the, the other things I just kind of wanted to touch on, um, and, and you talked again, alluded to around that kind of collectively being able to kind of work on this to make the right decisions to build build the, the guardrails and the understanding and, and, and being able to kind of use this technology in the right way. You know the concept around kind of technology integrations and and ecosystems and and organisations want to re- reduce the number of vendors, but more importantly, having their technology stack working closely together. AI seems a, another obvious way for kind of collectively of us as an industry to get closer to. Yes, there's lots of us that you know kind of technology companies are competitors, but actually being able to work closer together to be able to share this intelligence being able to leverage all of you know the greater insights and understanding and visibility that we have that seems that seems as much an uh, an obligation as it does a, a commercial opportunity to be able to make products better and being able to deliver better value back to back to customers i would i would i would think so we're not seeing that at the moment we're, we are in a world where for example if you push if you just take the full checkpoint portfolio you know, the, the endpoint, email, cloud, firewalls, etc. You get a full ecosystem of checkpoint 
protecting things. If you then yeah. go down the space of saying, well, I want to have some competitors in this in that space, I want to have some network vendors in that space, I perhaps want some specialist security vendors in that space, we tend to manage all that through orchestration or through security operations via SIM. But but it's been yeah. done in, it's been done in a space where it's looking at data, it's trying to understand data flows, but I expect that we'll get to the point where you've got competitive solutions from different vendors that are all talking in real time and learning from each other. Yeah. And that's, that's where I expect we'll get to. So rather than single vendors being able to just do that on their, own, or on their own, you should be able to then layer in other bits of technologies to do it. You might still get benefits from going down a single vendor route. You might find it's more yeah. cost effective. It might perform better. But uh, I would like to think that, uh, you know, through the use of through the use of APIs that uh, we can connect our, our AI together. If we do AI together, perhaps that's the best way of defeating the threat actors using using the AI against us. That's got to be it's got to be a huge positive, I think. Yeah, and I think that pro- you know the, the technology is properly having a, a conversation rather than just literally, as you say, kind of data flows going backwards, well, you know, backwards and forwards, and pushing out instructions. There's just a lot of value in that. Well, there is value, but it's just it, it's, it's data, you know. And we still need to then understand what the data is, what the trends, what the themes, what we're seeing. Try and understand what the what the false positives are, or what's actually a threat. But uh, ideally, as well, if we can get systems in real time all talking and learning from each other, then perhaps we can reduce the data flows we're seeing. Perhaps we get to a point we don't need SIMs. Perhaps it's the individual vendor systems that are all doing that. So again, removing that complexity from the cyber landscape can only be a good thing. Absolutely. Um, we're just beginning to kind of uh, kind of get to the get to the, the top um, and, and begin to wrap up. One of the things we always kind of you know like to talk about, whatever subject it is, trying to get, kind of get a bit of an understanding as to where the trends are, you know, where it's going, what kind of not necessarily just look at predictions, but getting an understanding of what the the roadmap looks kind of going forward. You've got the hardest job if I'm going to ask you what does you know what does the technology landscape look like for AI over the next. Uh, six, 12, or kind of uh, uh, 24 to 36 months. I suppose that's that's the challenge for us all, isn't it? I think so. I, I wouldn't even try and uh, guess what's what's happening in the next two years, three years, etc., yeah. because the technology is moving, is moving so fast. But uh, I do expect it will be embedded in every security product or solution people want to take. It will start to mature. And as I said earlier, I I do expect that we'll start to get alliances or groups that uh, develop and work on things together in real term for for the betterment of of what's happening on the Internet, which is what we're all trying to do. We want to protect our assets, protect our data, protect consumers. And that's a world that I think is going to happen. I don't think we're going to quickly get to a point where you'll just speak to your firewall and your firewall will understand what you're trying to do and make these rule sets. I still think you'll want individuals to do things, but... uh, I do think the automation will absolutely start to move forward at a, a very, very fast rate. And I think that's the big change we'll start to see. The remediation will start to really happen. We'll start to lower the cyber risk by understanding behavioral threats that they're actually seeing and then making very, very quick changes, much quicker than a human would be able to impact. But uh, that's that's what I think is going to happen. In three years' time, I've got absolutely no idea. I just hope, that, uh, just hope we're all around to still have these conversations, Neil. I, I hope so. Although, you, uh, to be honest, you've just given me an image of some a uh, bunch of analysts in a, in a sock room somewhere, surrounded by monitors, just shouting at their firewall, um, trying to get it to do things. So, you know, <laughs> hope, hopefully, hopefully, we're not going to end up end up like that. So, what, what I'd just like to kind of finish on on one thing. I suppose this again is that kind of 
it, it's not easy to to know how the best approach is to be able to. We can see the opportunity, but how do we leverage it? In in terms of if we had a, a you know either a kind of partner listening who was looking at kind of the practical steps that they could take with their customers, or or an end user, um, you know, an IT professional thinking about how best that they can leverage AI or or defend against the threats. What would be the kind of the one takeaway, the one next step of a you know kind of simple practical move that an organisation can take to be able to either defend themselves or to be able to leverage the, the the benefits that AI could bring. I think it's two things, Neil. The first thing I think is you need to make sure that you're providing a safe space to play with the technology. You saw that when Samsung got their fingers burnt with uh, uploading pieces of code to help them debug issues, etc. You, you don't want to be you don't want to be pushing up any of your intellectual property into into any of the bots. Even even if you're doing it in a bit where they're saying it's incognito mode and it won't save it. I would be yeah. just saying, don't do it. You know, play, go in a safe space. Do it within either your 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 computers that you've got sitting in home, or create a segregated place on the network. Make sure you're you're monitoring and managing the data that's been shared. But use the technology. It's important to start to get to use it. Yeah. So that's the first thing. Safe spaces. Second thing, what I would say is, make sure you're understanding the impact of this technology anywhere you want to use it. So it's still the same as everything else. You still want to do your, your data impact assessments. You want to understand you understand the use case for why you would want to use it. You want to understand how your data has been processed, what's happening with it, and understand what the benefits of. So I, again, what I would still say is it's not the technology aspects. It's still, yeah. doing, it's still doing the common sense due diligence that you would do when you're bringing any new technology into a business. It's, uh, you want to do it the same way. And if Samsung had done that, I suspect that uh, they wouldn't have had these issues in the first place. No, absolutely agree. Well, I think that that's really good advice. Um, and it's been, yeah, a really fantastic, um, insightful talk. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Neil. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't forget, um, watch out for the next episode um, wherever you get your podcast. But for today, Derek, thank you very much.